Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is our discussion of the end of a story by John V. Marsh. And as we said probably too many times in the recap episode, we're going to save our questions about whether or not the Shadow Children are from Earth. And if so, when did they get to St. Anne? We're going to save those questions for the wrap-up episode, largely. I mean, our answers to these questions are going to inform a number of the things that we do want to talk about today. Uh, but as is so often the case, there is a, a lot to dig into, a lot to figure out and to unpack. So, uh, Brandon, where do you want to start? Well, as you said, Glenn, there is so much in this section that fits into the larger context of the story as a whole. And we do want to save that for our wrap-up discussion to really get into what is going on in this story, answer the bigger questions. This isn't the episode for that. We're going to stick to what's going on in this section. The main thing that I want us to highlight today for our discussion is how Wolf is treating colonization. But I think the best place to start with that, there are a couple good places to start, because this section is explicitly about the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, the kind of dynamic that they form, the problems of conflating various people groups in a terrain that is based on um, a map that the people didn't draw. And of course, this section ends with a new colonizer from Earth arriving. But let's start with the place names that the Shadow Children believe that their brothers and sisters from the stars are from. I want to preface this by saying that, to me, this reads like the names of places from adventure fiction, but also seem like pretty great names to name new planets, potentially. And, and that might be what's on the mind of the Star Crossers. But let's run through this list of names and what they are and where they are, are found in literature, and see if we can figure anything out about what's going on in this story, or maybe how it connects to colonialism. The first on the list is Atlantis. This is the penultimate lost continent, the most famous of them, probably. Plato uses it as an example in his dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. And Though it is a fictional place, there was a long tradition of people not reading it as fiction, as if it was a real lost continent who lost favor with the gods due to its activities and hubris and statecraft and all this stuff and is sunk in the Atlantic Ocean. Something that's really great about the Atlantis story, right? The thing that you just said is what most people think of when they think of Atlantis, right? It's a prehistoric civilization that maybe possessed more powerful and sophisticated technology than we do, and which was, I don't know, maybe some kind of utopia, and that it sank into the sea, perhaps through some kind of scientific or technological hubris. We all know this story from pop culture. If you've you know watched a cartoon or read a comic book or really watched any kind of genre TV show or anything on the History Channel, frankly, you know this story. But this story is less than 200 years old. This story about Atlantis doesn't derive from Plato. It doesn't derive from antiquity or the Middle Ages. It comes from a book called Atlantis, colon, The Antediluvian World, which was published and written by a guy named Ignatius Donnelly in 1882. Donnelly was a U.S. congressman from Minnesota, 
These were the days when you could have crackpot theories and be a, a legislator. But he moved to Minnesota as a pioneer. He actually grew up right here in Philly. He went to Central High School and he also went to the Philadelphia College of Medicine. And the story that he tells in this book is totally made up. He hasn't found some other Greek text that talks about Atlantis that classicists hadn't noticed before or something like that. It's really just one example of all sorts of inventions of prehistoric civilizations and alien visitors in the 19th century. That's a big part of the Second Great Awakening. We're going to get another of those in a moment. But I just wanted to point out that this thing that we all think of when we think of Atlantis is new. It's something that's been invented very recently. Right. I think if you go back to the source texts, it is clear that this is a fiction, a Thomas More utopia type of thing. And then Thomas More even gets the idea to tell the story of utopia from Plato's talking of Atlantis and using it as an example of statecraft of this, you know, aged civilization that was missing. I mean, it was missing. It doesn't need to be a real place for Plato because it's a fiction for his dialogue anyway. Right. But number five, back in Fifth Head, believes this. This is the story of Atlantis that he thinks also is true, even though his brother is literally right next to him, like reading the Odyssey. Uh, he thinks that Atlantis is some kind of lost, technologically sophisticated human society that we just don't have any historical record of. And he brings this up, right, when he's suggesting that the natives of St. Anne could be descended from people who traveled from Atlantis to this star system, even before, you know, the pyramids were constructed in Egypt or something like that. But I actually think that, well, that's very important, that Wolf is doing something a little more sophisticated here when he brings this up. You've mentioned already which Platonic dialogues we get the story of Atlantis. It's it's just these two, the Timaeus and the, the Critias. But the Timaeus deals with the nature of the physical world and the nature of the eternal world. It deals with the elements and it deals with the creation of the world's soul, which is also what this whole novella is about. Right, right, right. right. And the Critias, and this is actually where we get the story of how Atlantis is destroyed, not sunk into the ocean. Atlantis is a city and its walls collapse because of an earthquake in Plato. There's, there's no sinking into the ocean there. But this is the story of how this happens after the people from Atlantis attempt to conquer the city-state of Athens and are defeated by the city-state of Athens, which is to say that the story of the downfall of Atlantis is about their attempt to imperialize, to conquer other people, to sail from their home and conquer other people. That is maybe also what's happening in this story, right? So I think Wolf is being very sophisticated with this reference here. Oh, there's no doubt that all of these are extremely well-chosen examples that are meant to be metatextual references that are pointing us in the direction of the meaning of the story. Glenn, you pointed out that my reading of the recent arrival of the Shadow Children, their addiction to drugs, maybe as I would read it in like the second generation that leads to their ultimate demise as a, as a species and powers as a species, that that is also in part due to the fact that a lot of these references are recent in human history. The way they're used, the way Wolf is using them and how they're grouped together, in my mind, particularly the last one, which I think we'll have a fun time talking about, in my mind refer to the recent past 
instead of a prehistoric past. Even the the next one on the list, which is Mu, is recent. This is also a 19th century invention. This word is from the 19th century. It is uh, the Atlantis for the Pacific. It is also sometimes called Lemuria, which we've encountered before in Wolf, right? This is the setting of the island of Dr. Death. And I'll point out that the Lemurians in that story are the descendants of a powerful type of human or maybe some other intelligent primate that had special powers of some sort. But the current Lemurians have lost those powers. They've degenerated, to use the language of eugenics and the pulp fiction of the time. But that is also what has happened to the shadow children here, right? Right, exactly. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more about Mu, this idea was popularized by a series of early 20th century books about the continent by a man called James Churchward. And it's not clear if he was writing for fun and profit or just because he somehow believed that under the ocean, this other continent was discovered and thinking about the culture of the Polynesian islands and and trying to cast it back into prehistory. Yeah, he didn't originate the term, though. It is actually invented, or we should maybe say hypothesized. Invented, though, I think is probably better, in the 19th century, really around the same time that Donnelly's writing his book about Atlantis. And in fact, that's maybe one of the impetuses for what's going on in the 19th century when a guy named Augustus Le Plongeon writes a book about Mu and is telling people all about it and sharing his hypothesis that there had been a similar continent to Atlantis in the Pacific. He's a really interesting figure for the themes of the story that we're talking about today, a story by John V. Marsh, because he is, you know, has this French name, Augustus Le Plongeon. Uh, He's born on Jersey in the Channel Islands. Uh, He dies in Brooklyn after he travels most of the world. So he is actually British politically. The Channel Islands are British, though they are not technically part of the United Kingdom. They have a slightly different passport. But he's British politically, but he is natively French-speaking. And therefore, he is a child of various colonialisms of the Middle Ages and Also, because he's getting to travel around the world, and it's the ruins of ancient civilizations that he's looking at as he travels the globe, his ideas and who he becomes as an adult is also the product of early modern European colonization of the rest of the world and and this creation of a global culture. So he himself is a product of the type of processes that Wolf is talking about here in this novella. Yeah. And to put an even finer point on it, James Churchward, from my understanding, has this whole story about how he learned about Mu and what he writes about from an Indian monk in some sense who revealed it to him and has these tablets of these Mayan civilization and Aztec civilization that were lost that point to this lost continent. So he is both drawing on Le Plongeon's sense of this continent and saying, I have more to say because of this secret mystic that is the result of British imperialism. His ability to interact with it is the direct result of his being a participator in imperialism. Well, the next place on the list is Gondwanaland. This is the name given for a supercontinent that existed hundreds of millions of years ago, and it was formed at least by the land masses of Africa, Australia, and Antarctica. So this is odd given that the next name on the list is Africa. 
Yeah, that is strange because it should be in some sense maybe wrapped up within Gondwana land in terms of the way that we think about hierarchies or taxonomical hierarchies, maybe we should say. Uh, I do want to remind listeners that number five, in addition to saying that maybe prehistoric people from Atlantis had come to St. Anne and St. Croix, number five also suggests that they could be descended from an earlier human technological culture that occupied Gondwana land. This, of course, is an absolutely absurd notion because Gondwanaland exists as this supercontinent like 500, 400, 300 million years ago. Homo sapiens is only 200,000 years old. Mammals are even only 320 million years old. So Gondwanaland as a distinct place ceases to exist before there are humans, primates, or any type of mammal at all. That's less important for our discussion today. It will become more important in our wrap-up discussion. But just on the face of it, this is an absurd thing for number five to have suggested. But to be fair, he was a kid having a good time. I do want to point out a, a reading of how Africa comes on this list, even though it seems maybe to be kind of an outlier on the list in that one, it's not invented or extraordinarily prehistoric. It is important as the location, the object of European colonialism and imperialism that I think Wolf wants us to be thinking about. I think that is one way to look at it that I agree with. But my my reading of it is that its inclusion on this list of fictional places immediately calls to mind to me, the novels of H. Ryder Haggard, particularly like King Solomon's Mines, which is about the lost treasures, the lost resources that are hidden on this continent of really a different race of people for H. Ryder Haggard. If His novels are great if you want to read 19th century pulp adventure stories. They're despicable by any standards of civility that we expect from our narratives today, from our adventure stories today. Uh, That's not to say that you shouldn't read them, because they do kind of really invent a lot of mythology about hidden treasures and the resources of a continent that has been lost. Africa is a kind of lost continent to H. Ryder Haggard, the same way that Nepal is a kind of lost country to people like James Hilton. So when you're when you're putting Africa in a list like this, to me, it is in this pulp adventure sense. Yeah, these pulp adventure stories are stories about imperialism and colonialism. These are only lost or dark or new from the perspective of Europeans, right? Not to the people who actually live there and know all about them. And even the gentlemen adventurers who are running around these places and finding lost mines and buried treasures and stirring up great old ones uh, where they ought not to be woken up are able to do that because they're from a society that has essentially conquered the globe and are able to amass the wealth of subaltern classes in these imperialized and colonialized places and travel and have adventures and do crazy things and be archaeologists. So I think the two things are working together there. Absolutely. We do still have two more items on this list. So let's jump into the next one, which is Poitem. Poitem is 100% an invention of modernity. It is invented by uh, an author named James Branch Cabell. He's a guy who wrote a fantasy series in the 19-teens, 1920s, 1930s, called The Biography of the Life of Manuel. This is like 25 books long. I've read four of these. We've got one. We have the second one here in the studio, though I've not read it in a long time. These books are set in Poitem, but Poitem is a fictitious French province in the 13th century. And the series is 
actually probably a pretty big influence on the Book of the New Sun. It charts Manuel's journey from being a simple swine herd to a count. Of course, there's all sorts of narratives that tell how people you know, increase their station in life. Robert Graves says, Claudius is a huge influence on the Book of the New Sun. But where I see this as being actually extremely important is that a swine herd might be about as close as you can get to a torturer in terms of the lowness of social status, right? If we call someone uh, swine or even, even say that someone is associated with swine, we know that's not a nice thing to say to them. That is about as low as you can get, uh, much like being a torturer in the Book of the New Sun. So I don't know, I might give uh, give those books a, a reread before we get there. We've got about a decade, so. Yeah, we got plenty of time to reread all of the things we need to read. Potem is also noted for being the name of a planet in a science fiction novel called Junkyard Planet by H. Beam Piper, which was published in 1963. This is a story about, uh, I suppose, I have not read it. I, I can only give you an abstract um, a soldier returning home to his planet after being out kind of conquering and the differences in technology that he feels need to change or, or there's something going on with the relationship between technology and humanity that is at a point of changing in his planet is called Junkyard Planet. It's Poitem because it is I don't know, the place where refuse is. I, I'm a sucker for, for Garbage Planet stories. And, and so this is a book I'm definitely going to pick up because Garbage Planet is maybe one of my favorite concepts of a pulp storytelling of all time. Yeah, Garbage Planet is for you as Space Jesuits is for me, yes. I think. <laughs> uh, one more thing I want to say about Poitain before we get to the, the last item on the list is just to point out that although James Branch Cable is an American, in fact, he's from Virginia, this is significant for the French connection, right? And we know that the French are the first wave of settlers. This is how we get Saint-Croix and Saint-Anne as the names and Port Mimizan and all of these words in French in both novellas so far. So I think that's important to point out. Well, let's come to the last one here on the list, The Country of Friends. This is a joke and Wolf is going to make this joke again. I can think off the top of my head of at least one story, Feather Tigers, where he does make this joke again. This means Texas. Texas is a word in the uh, the Caddo language that means friends or allies. And so using it as a place name is a way of saying that's the place or the region or the country of friends or where we have allies. Wolf thinks this is hilarious. I, I do too. I think it's pretty great. Robert Borsky points this out in his concordance. I'm absolutely willing to believe that this is not just a joke of the country of friends, but I also think it's important to point out that NASA is headquartered in Texas. And so this is where all of our space and aeronautic science really is located. And so saying they come from the country of friends is saying they come from the place where space is done, where space science is done. That's an inference I did not make. I think that's fantastic. I thought this was a double joke. This is the joke just on the play of the name, which also is, you know, about colonialism here and what language we actually use, appropriating other people's languages for one thing. But let's remember that all of these are names that the Shadow Children are hearing in the songs of space travelers as they go by, which is to say they're reading the minds of people on spaceships that are going to San Croix. So I assumed that this was Mr. Million's brain, because that is Gene Wolfe, who is from Texas. I thought this was a joke about reading Mr. Million's mind. I think you made a lot more connections to fifth head text through this list of names than, than I did, which I think is fantastic. 
And Mr. Million's mind does happen to be the mind, if Mark Aramini is correct, and his reading is one I've really come to prefer over my own, that everyone in Port Mimizan is a clone of Mr. Million at one level. Yeah, so everyone's from Texas, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you can't actually be from Poitam, Guantanamo, Atlantis, or Mu, so you're either from Texas or Africa, I guess. Right. I think in terms of the insubstantial nature of that the Shadow Children have, have adopted, that this country of friends is both a joke on Texas and a reference to the nation that created NASA. Yeah, I do think that's absolutely a fantastic reading. Well, we're going to revisit this list for what it suggests about where people are coming from when we do take up the question of, are the Shadow Children originally from Earth? And if so, when did they get to St. Anne? But I think what we wanted to point out by going through the list this time was how much this list is wrapped up in the theme of colonialism, of colonization, of traveling a great distance to subjugate, to conquer other people. And also of a more neutral sense, though Africa is really the standout, of good statecraft, of gaining resources from other people, of saying that if we bring them in to our way of life, we can share resources, right? This is the benign sort of definition of colonialism. It has never been the case that this is how colonies actually operate. But it is sort of the benign idea. It is the, the Roman Empire's expansion bringing people in to gain resources. Yeah, and maybe I should walk back my characterization of that a little bit and start with some definitions. The word colony comes from this Latin word colonist, which actually just refers to a farm. Later, then takes on a more technical meaning as a settlement of Roman citizens who are sent outside of Italy to go create a new community somewhere else. Not to take it from other people. These are placed in locations where there are not currently people living or only a few and they can come to some kind of agreement. Often there's monetary compensation and then the inclusion of those people in the community. This was politically motivated, but it was also motivated by lots of other concerns. When we talk about colonialism with a capital C, though, we are really talking about this European movement in early modernity, in particular, the New World, because that is where people from Europe are going to establish new communities. So it is not merely conquering and subjugating people, though that is a factor in the ability of millions of Europeans to get on boats and go build new towns like the one we're recording in right now uh, on the other side of the ocean. But we should make clear that while those activities are features of and factors of, they are not maybe inherently the goal of colonialism. Subjugation and conquest, though, are the motivation of imperialism. And this is more of a 18th and 19th century wave. It's it's later than early modernity. It's, this is something that's really going on in the advent of what we would call high modernity. These are the people like Rudyard Kipling, for example, and also Joseph Conrad writing these great stories about imperialism. Yeah, and I'll just say one more thing, really kind of walking back my own comment. We don't actually know anything about the motivations of the people who are landing in this spaceship here in this river estuary at the end of this story. And we don't know anything about the motivations of the people who become the shadow children. We also don't know what the state of their knowledge is. And just to be clear that if what we're told about the abos is true, then there weren't even perhaps any sentient creatures on this planet before the 
explorers from Earth arrived. And so it may not be fair to call them colonialists or imperialists. Nonetheless, that is the motif that Wolf is working with in this story. And I think that's abundantly clear. And I think we're going to jump into that now. So I think we're also keeping in the idea of colonialism as we're talking about post-colonial theory, which is is really post-imperialist theory, though the term goes all the way back to accommodate more types of narratives that have been lost. It is about the subjectivity of the person who has been colonized. I want to avoid using phrases like oppressed and oppressor because I think they're too charged. It is simply about something that Slavoj Žižek referred to as an event, which is simply a narrative shifting thing that takes place that violently forces the realization on the person experiencing it, that they were living in a world that was very different than what they thought they were living in. To me, an event is a much better way of exploring these types of things because it allows for dignity of humanity and freedom on all sides. And I think Wolf is very much narratizing something like an event in a colonial history of a spacefaring planet. And just putting the two novellas that we've read so far together, The Fifth Head of Cerberus is about the colony that's established itself on a planet that was uninhabited. So this is just a new colony. We're looking at that. Now we get the next story, which is about the indigenous people on the eve of the first or perhaps second act of colonization from another place. This is a great balance. And this is Wolf exploring both groups that exist in any tale of colonialism. Yeah. So I think the first thing we need to do is just talk about the nature of the abos, what Wolf calls the abos, which is, of course, a pejorative a term used to group perhaps many groups of people into one thing that can be placed in the corner of the room, in a sense. And this is a term that is a shortened term of Aboriginal used in Australia. So I'm going to read about how the shadow children, who are now revealed to be human, describe the species. And this is at the bottom of page 124 and, and kind of the middle of page 125. It was not necessary for us to lose our appearance for you to gain it. You come from a race of shape changers, like those we call werewolves in our old home. When we came, some of you looked like every beast, and some were of fantastic forms inspired by the clouds, or by lava flows, or water. But we walked among you in power, and majesty, and might, hissing like a thousand serpents as we splashed down in your sea, stepping like conquerors when we rode ashore with burning lights in our fists and flame and wrapped in terrible glory. There are a number of things I, I want to point out here, many of which we pointed out in the recap, but I also want to talk about the just so story that Sandwalker knows. And the reason why is because the hill people have a very significant symbolic relationship with the river. And that what was taken off in this river, and this is also language from one of Paul's letters about taking off and putting on the elevation of our character. We put on the armor of God. But this is a very important concept in the New Testament, this taking off and putting on. And when we connect that with the symbolic significance of the river as being symbolic of God's purity, 
and we learn about the elevation of the status that the hill people have in their own mind by imitating the shadow children when they first arrived, I think we get a very different sense of the hill people's first encounter with the shadow children, with the first humans, that it needs to be contrasted with the dread and fear of the Marshmen's encounter with the first humans. And one thing that leads me to think that there is also a real difference in these encounters is because we know how the geography of this planet works. The hill people are far from the lava fields and the marshes, but the river is significant to both. The river is a symbol of purity for the hill people, and they take on something from the river, something that they say that the shadow children took off for them to take up. The lava fields are very separate from the the hills. And I'm suggesting that it is the history of this encounter that there was a wide geographic landing, or perhaps colonies were planted, and that the shapeshifters were seen as just one thing by the shadow children, by the first humans, the same way that Sandwalker only sees the Shadow Children as one thing, though he learns that they're differentiated, and that this little two-clause grouping of words is meant to indicate that there perhaps were a multitude of shape-shifting species, maybe under one parent species, that had very different encounters with the humans when they arrived. And I should also just say that we know that they are a distinct species because their brain is in the thorax. And something about that line with knowing that last voice has dissected people, dissected other of the women, makes me think that they are doing some investigation of the differences of species. Before I respond to really the core thing that you're getting at here, I want to clarify the use of the word species here, in part because Wolf has some controversial views on how species come to be and how we might identify them because he believes that uh, Lamarckian evolution is possible uh, and compatible with Darwinian evolution, though most people who subscribe to Darwinian evolution, which is almost all biologists, would say that that's not true. What Wolf is imagining as the state of St. Anne, the state of life on St. Anne, before any creature from another planet arrives is that there is a species of creature here on this planet that can take on a multitude of phenotypes while still being the same species. We define species as something that can reproduce, that two members of it, or possibly more, or one member of it itself with different uh, body parts can create another of its kind. And certainly when we're talking about animals, we are talking about if two things can sexually reproduce, then they are a species. There are some exceptions to that, but that's one of the ways that we say that something is a species or not. If we look out the window and we see outside that someone is out there walking a dog and we see a cat in someone's window and might say, gosh, look at those small four-legged furry creatures, that's a similarity that they have, but we know that they are actually distinct species and that they couldn't reproduce. They couldn't make a new creature together. Wolf is postulating here, though, that there are some creatures on St. Anne that can look totally different from each other, even more different than a cat and a dog look from each other and still reproduce because they are the same species. And in fact, the most interesting characteristic of this species is that their phenotype, the form, the shape that they have is 
malleable. It's it's plastic in some way. And there's a question here of how would you recognize that? If we showed up on St. Anne in this condition and saw something that looked like a cloud, something that looked like a lava stream, and something also that looked like a bird or a mouse or something. But we recognized all of these things to be creatures and not some natural elemental phenomenon. How would we ever intuit? How would we ever know that they are the same species? The fact that the shadow children are certain of that suggests that they have made some observation of the fact of this somehow. Possibly they've witnessed the metamorphosis, the, this bodily transformation from one creature to another. They've witnessed mating. I think it's probably pretty likely that they did some dissections, that they caught into some things as well, and actually did microscopic and genetic analysis, at, you know, looking actually at the DNA in these creatures and recognizing that oh, this thing that is a lava flow and also this thing that is a bird actually are genetically the exact same thing. Well, one thing that we absolutely know is they say the brain is in the thorax, and these are medical terms, right, that, that speak to their study of the species on the planet in some way. I think the real clue came when more humans started showing up than landed on the planet. To me, that would be like the main hint. And I don't know, I can imagine a conflict arising out of that, a la, you know, John Carpenter's The Thing at the end where they're trying to discover who is human. Maybe the story we're not getting here is is uh, the, the thing from another planet, right? Yeah, I have a lot of questions about how precisely, how perfectly the abos really are able to take on the forms of the things that they are imitating. I think I'll save my comments about that to our wrap-up episode when we're going to explore these issues a little bit more in depth and a little bit more philosophically. I think for now, I'll, I'll just try to bring us back to kind of your original premise about how the hill people and the marshmen come to be at odds with one another. Because I think you're positing that they have distinct, separate interactions with people from Earth, that there are some of these creatures living around the river estuary and the lava flows, and then there, there are some creatures living in the hills. And that as explorers from Earth encounter those creatures, those creatures see these humans, these people from Earth, and imitate them and, and mimic them, perhaps consciously, sentiently, perhaps as some kind of autonomic response. We will talk more about that. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true, uh, or, or I'm just not sure that that's necessary. I think that what may happen here, right, is simply that one of these creatures sees a human and mimics it. Other creatures see this Annie's creature that is now mimicking the form of a human, and they are mimicking the mimic. So it's kind of a, a cascade. So I don't think that the fact that some of these Annie's animals are mimicking humans means that they have actually seen a human. That's a great point and an incredible possibility because we absolutely have no evidence for anything happening other than the transformation of a species to imitating humans. I want to suggest, though, that the reason why they imitate humans is because they are trying to imitate things both for survival as a base level, but these abstract elemental forms they take are not going to feed them in any significant way. And for a human being or a species to withstand a lava flow, what's suggested in some kind of situation where the lava is not as much of a threat as it would be for a species who would be melted by fire. And so for me, this geographic separation of these species that they do kind of exist, they do roam different lands, though they are the same generic species of shape changers. 
allows for the fact that some wave of colonizers did come, that there were individual people. They are not just colonizers. They are individual people who went out maybe to study different regions and encountered this native species in different ways. And then a second transformation took place where they lost sight of what they were doing as a result of the drug. But the initial encounter was very important in the formation of why the people of the lava fields, the marshmen, are terrified of star crossers and create a religion around killing whoever is in charge when one comes and why the people of the hills view the putting on the appearance after this has been bathed in the river allows the river to be a symbol of purification. I see what you're getting at here. What you're saying is that the Annie's animals that inhabit the area around the ocean, this river estuary, this is where the spaceships land. So they have a memory somehow of this event, which is definitely scary. The way that Wolf narrates these star crossers descending into the ocean here at the end of this story is pretty terrifying. And this is from the perspective of them as sentient creatures who can rationalize about the world. If they're animals who cannot do that initially, then wow, how much more terrifying must that have been? But the hill people don't have this concern. They don't have this memory. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely astute observation. I just wasn't clear that that's what you were saying before. I hope I've expressed the dichotomy. You did. You did it very well. I want to let our listeners know that that I found this very challenging to parse out and dissect. And so some of what we're doing is talking around these ideas to get a clear explanation of what we're even trying to talk about. And this is a perfect example of the type of thing that happened in the early modern phase of colonialism that Wolf is dealing with here. That although it is very easy for us, perhaps in a high school history class or even a college history class, to speak generically about Native Americans or First Peoples or Aboriginals as if that's a category in which all people and all groups are the same and are having the same experiences. But that is absolutely not true, that the people who fall under these umbrella terms that we have made up have distinct cultures, and also they are distinct individual people who are experiencing the arrival of new people from far, far away, from places they didn't know exist, in different ways, also at different times, and that they are having different cultural responses to it. And I think, yeah, you've definitely hit on something here by showing that the the people who are on the beach... The people who encounter them first, who see their technology, their might, their glory, the fire and flames that are in their hand, their the, the weapons of light, laser guns, I guess, right? Their first understanding of who these people are is about the violence and about fear of death and fear of other types of loss and destruction that might accompany that. Uh, the people in the hinterland don't have that memory. They have a, a very different experience. In this case, they don't even know about them. They have no memory of this first wave of human colonists or human explorers at all. It was not something that was traumatic to them at all. And in fact, in some way, they might actually think that this was a boon because now they have become people where before they were just animals. They've actually gained something from this. And this is absolutely something that 
happened historically in colonialism, that many groups benefited by allying themselves with the colonizers and did so very consciously to better their position vis-a-vis their neighbors or even internally within groups, right? Political factions, etc. So I think that's something that Wolf is definitely demonstrating here. Right. And we see this with the way that the hill people revere the shadow children. I think this symbol in the river can't be overstated. It is absolutely connected to their view of the river as purifying, as getting them close to God. They are taking on the image of glory, of a a new type of species. And they leave offerings for the shadow children, mice when they sleep, different things. Being asleep is connected to the shadow children being awake at night. And there's a sense of reverence of, of the kind of elfin kind that you pointed out so so astutely in, in our first episode. But for the Marshmen, we see a much more violent culture, a culture that uses tools to kill, but also the river to kill. And their imitation of man, their putting on of mankind is the result of this first event, this violent encounter that they continue with and they watch the stars vigilantly to protect from another one. But what they put on is a different type of mankind than what I think the hill people put on. And we could even say that because the marshmen have experienced the trauma of seeing these people come from the sky, probably these are the creatures that have been dissected such that the shadow children know where the brain is located anatomically, that they have experienced the the fear of seeing the superior technology. They've also suffered, in some degree anyway, violence from these new arrivals, these people who have come here. But they have also learned that violence, that they're not just cowering in fear and developing religious rights that they think will prevent this from happening again. They are now imitating colonizers. They're imitating imperialists in the way that they treat both the shadow children and the hill people as objects of violence, as objects of of subjugation and conquest, and that they see everything as a threat. This is the, I learned it by watching you colonialism effect. Right. This is the terrible thing that happens when you focus your gaze upon an enemy. You cannot help but to become more like them and you become more and more like. This is explored so well in John le Carre's George Smiley novels, which is that there is no difference between Great Britain and Russia anymore. That their means of operating in the world, their modes of using soft power, the way they use proxy wars to get what they want, their willingness to use different types of terrorist attacks are exactly the same. And so there is no moral difference anymore that anyone can claim other than a need to maintain one's stance of power. And this is the the final end game, uh, as we know it, of colonialism and imperialism is becoming like that which you are trying to overcome morally in some way. And, and this is really caught up in Christianity as well, the fall of man, the, the mandate to go and make new disciples of Christ is to make people imitate Christ in some way. And this was, uh, for a long time, a call used to defend colonialism, that we need to convert in order to save. And that conflation of Christianity and Western civilization took many years to untangle. And we see the fall being played out explicitly in this story, as we brought up in the recap. I'm glad you brought up the missionary aspect of colonialism. People who are coming from Europe to 
the Americas are doing so for a variety of reasons. People are coming to attain material wealth by stealing it from other people or finding people to economically exploit. They're also coming just for the military glory. We've seen glory as a word here of of having defeated people. That's actually a huge motivator that is really so foreign to us as to be downright alien, I think. But for people in the 16th, 17th centuries, 15th centuries, this was a very real thing for some parts of Europe, some social classes. People are also coming to escape the oppression that they're actually living under in Europe. People are also coming because they have learned that there are humans out in the world or sentient creatures out in the world, as we might say here in space or out in the cosmos, who don't know the secret to living forever. They don't know about the message of Jesus Christ. And in fact, we have a moral obligation as the priests of Jesus Christ to go tell people about him and to share the secret of living forever in the kingdom of heaven with people who've never heard this news. That's the missionary aspect of colonialism. Uh, These things are all going on right together at the same time from the very start. But I'm so glad that you brought that up because we did in our last discussion episode, we went through in perhaps nauseating detail how these two groups, the Hill People and the Marshmen, have very different religious views. They have different rituals, but they also have totally different theologies. Something that I was hinting at there, but maybe didn't point out as explicitly as I should, the Hill People are Catholics and the Marshmen are are heretics. They have everything wrong, but the Hill People have everything right. They have the ritual of baptism, the sacrament of baptism. They understand that God is not subject to his own creation, that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. This might actually suggest, right, that there are two different experiences going on here, that the marshmen have experienced the people who have come for martial glory and economic gain, exploitation, material wealth, But the Hill people have encountered the missionaries, who might also be scientific explorers, perhaps. But I would not be surprised to discover that Wolf just assumed that on the first spaceship that reached St. Anne, there were, in fact, missionaries on that journey. Yeah, that could very well be the case. But what we know for certain is that, well, we don't know for certain. What I am asserting is that there are two radically different encounters that are the result of geography, that one branch of the species is imitating the humans for one reason, and one is imitating them for a different one. And that goes hand in hand with the actual experience of the new world here in early modernity. The people who were looking for glory and gain didn't travel into the hinterland because these things were pretty easily attainable on the coast. The people who went inland were the missionaries because they were looking for people. They wanted to reach everybody. They also were interested. They were the scientists. These Jesuits and Franciscans in particular were the scientists of the day. They were interested in being anthropologists. They wanted to learn about these people. The records that we have of native languages that no one speaks anymore, we largely have because these missionaries were interested in learning about the native culture and native languages of these people and wrote them down, wrote grammars for these languages, etc. They're also extraordinarily interested in the new flora and fauna that they're discovering, also the new geological uh, features that they're finding and what information this tells them about what the world is like. This line between missionaries and scientist doesn't exist in the 16th and 17th centuries. So I do think that the experiences of the Marshmen and the Hill people here actually mimic that 
Completely. So I think that was an awesome observation. I hadn't thought about this at all until you explained it to me, basically. <laughs> well, that's what, that's, what I, that's what I do here. That's what I'm for. We all need to know what we're for. Well, I think the, the, uh, we now need to look at the other side of the coin, which is the degeneration, the cost of colonization on the humans who make contact. And this is what we see with the shadow children. So I'm going to quote what Sandwalker says about the shadow children and also what the marsh men kind of make of the children an abstraction in a sense. Sandwalker says this, and I'm paraphrasing a little, but many of the words are in the text. Their bones are bent and weak and their faces are ill and they run from men and from the light. And this is in response to them, to the shadow children proclaiming their glory and them being taller than the hill people and stronger than them because in the mind that is only only what they believe is what matters we know that the shadow children have changed from what they were objectively and that their numbers are dwindling both as a result of being preyed upon by the marshmen but also because of their addiction to this drug that makes them lose all desire but to be like god this is our saint john of the cross reference though wolf has done a classic Wolfian reversal with his Catholic references here. But we also know that their addiction to this plant, which is poisonous, allows them to live in a totally subjective reality whose wisdom, uh, embodied by the old wise one, comes from a group mental projection that creates a norm that aids them somehow in their survival and their living. They are not how they see themselves at all. And the, the drug somehow also gives them power to preserve their personal paradise, as they call it, the last paradise, and keep other humans from discovering it. And we know that the old wise one is, is, is kind of hurt, is, is kind of offended by Sandwalker's objective vision of them. And to me, this speaks to the cost of colonization, of a multi-generational outpost, where, like we see with the I don't know, opium explosion, perhaps in England, um, something like a drug is taking hold of uh, a colonizer's population. So I just want to know what your thoughts are about this type of cost of colonization that Wolf is making a statement on here, or whether or not he's making a statement at all about it. This is a really great question, because to my mind, the, the people who are the other side of this coin are actually the people on San Croix, or the people that we've met in Port Mimizan, the people who have, in the act of setting up this colony from Earth on another planet far away, have created a slave society that is morally bankrupt and, and has really nothing good about it. It has no moral compass. It has the trappings and the sounds of religion, but none of its substance where we actually see people who are especially religious, who are devout people among the Annies in this novella. If a student maybe in my modern world history class or something like that had asked me to list 10 costs of colonizing that societies in the old world had to pay for their, I don't know, for their colonization of the, the new world, drug addiction would not be one that would show up on that top 10 list, though it is true that the drugs come from the New World, from the places that Europeans encountered in this wave of colonialism and also the wave of imperialism. Things like cocaine also 
caffeine coming from the new world and then things like opium that Europeans are importing from China. But this would not have been on my list of, of things that are the price of colonialism. I'm really fascinated that Wolf maybe thinks that it is or that Wolf wanted to make that a part of his story here. I don't quite know what he's doing with it. I have to think that in some sense that there's a metaphor going on here, right, that find this addictive substance, though it has a clear physiological working in the universe in what it is doing to the humans uh, when they get to St. Anne. I have to think that Wolf is also employing that as some kind of metaphor. And I think it's extremely important that as they are using this drug, they have lost their religion and in fact now think that in some way they are gods and that they are magic people, that they have turned into fairies or or elves in some way. But I don't really know what to do with that. I'm hoping you have better answers. Well, I think there's a few things we can say. One is in their minds, nothing has changed. They are shriveled and diminished and impish in a kind of Bashian sense of the word. They are grotesques as a result of their activities on this planet. And I think part of the horror for Wolf here is that what was once first the icon for imitation, the standard for being, becomes this grotesque, shriveled, diminished sense of human, where what they brought with them, the idea, the longer that idea is there, the more they're diminished, perhaps by their own encounter by new ideas, but perhaps by what people recognize of them is imitated, they fall so short of that ideal. That something is happening with the the river and the stars here, right? And with Sandwalker and Eastwind, that there is a, a cost to this type of event that is really hard to measure. But we know that imitation is a part of it. I think one thing we recognize uh, from great Blakean romanticism, the value of misreading, but also if you're ever around children, you don't know what they pick up from you. You have an idea of yourself, but you have no idea what a new mind is going to take from you. And, and this is Blake's misreading of Milton, of Paradise Lost, that makes Lucifer the hero, where romanticism grows out of this sense of heroic individualism. They called it, you know, satanic individualism or Promethean, the Promethean man. This is Frankenstein or the Promethean man, right? Shelley has a poem, the Promethean man. Um, This stealing fire from the gods to become like God, to live heroically as an individual, even if it damns you, is all a part of this culture of misreading, of thinking you're one thing. But when you go somewhere else, that becomes a mirror of what people pick up on you because that's what you expect from them. And this is that writ in the most literal terms possible. To be honest, I'm not even entirely convinced that there has been an actual physical change to the Shadow Children since they've been on St. Anne. I know that the Shadow Children themselves are continually saying that, that this old wise one is saying that. But I'm, I'm not convinced that they have undergone a type of physical change. I do absolutely believe that a hill person looking at a shadow child sees a creature that doesn't exactly resemble it and 
vice versa. But I'm not sure that the story about the physiological change, the losing their form, is anything other than a metaphor, even as it's coming out of the mouths of the shadow children. That could be. We also have another way of looking at the language of taking off appearances. In the instance that this is used, Sandwalker is thinking specifically of ornamentation, of feathers in the hair, of some way of representing another creature as a means of ornamentation. I mean, it's very possible, though maybe far-fetched, that one reason that the shadow children can tell the abos apart from themselves is because all of them look like they're wearing clothes or spacesuits or something like that, that there's some type of being that they have misread about what the humans are. But I think that in some level, we're dealing with a, a Dorian Gray type of thing where the soul is, is shriveled and, and warped. And I think when we get at the end, the confusion of the old wise one about which songs came first, that there is some innate ability for the creatures who are able to mimic to see the spiritual reality of things. And that the humans have picked that up from the, this plant, but it's not an innate ability. And so they see a different reality, perhaps both objective and spiritual substance realities that the abos can see, and the shadow children can only see a, a warped vision. It's probably not even right or at least fair to be talking about the abos or the, the anis, these pliomorphic creatures, as even dependent in any way on appearances in order to identify and classify living beings because they can change their shape. But also we can see this in the way that Sandwalker interacts with shadow children the first time that we see him do that versus the way that he interacts with sentient trees. He on some level recognizes that the tree in this oasis is a person who deserves to be treated with respect and dignity, whose personal space shouldn't be violated without asking permission, who shouldn't be touched without asking permission, because that tree is also in his species, but it hasn't taken on the form of a person. But it is one of these creatures that's taken on the form of a tree. But Sandwalker knows the shadow children are something different, even though they more closely look like him. Right. And we see this in the same thing with, with their belief in ghosts and spirits, what they call ghosts. What the priest is could be just a spirit, a cloud, a, a, a patch of fog in thunder always. I think you're absolutely right that they see the spiritual substance of things, not the extension of things. And we're going to take up these issues a lot more uh, completely, really, in our in our wrap up episode. But I think we've got a couple more things that we want to talk about regarding colonialism and, and the experience of these multiple species interacting with each other here on this planet. I think the the third way, the third question I want to ask is, what do you make of, of Sandwalker agreeing and the Shadow Ch Child's prompting that a new wave of colonizers coming to the planet is preferable to them dying? And are we meant to read this as a, as a tragic story? And if so, for, for whom? For whom is this a tragic story? Well, this is exactly the sort of thing that I was thinking about earlier when I said that there's factionalism happening within the political structures of the people who are encountering European explorers, European colonizers, European conquerors in the New World. And, and just to think particularly of Hernan Cortez showing up in Mexico, 
famously, right, Cortez burns his ships so that they have to conquer the Aztec Empire or die trying, that there is no returning home. That might actually be something similar that's happening here. We, we do learn that they've lost their spaceship. And ultimately, Cortez and his people are successful in doing this, but only because they find allies within the Aztec Empire who want to overthrow the ruling regime for their own benefit. So that Hernan Cortez is promising these minority groups within the Aztec Empire that they will benefit from the destruction of the Aztec state. They will perhaps be placed at the top of the Aztec state, or they'll be given a prominent position within whatever it is that succeeds it. And in exchange for those rewards, these promised rewards, they help out. This is the only way that this is successful. If Cortez in Mexico, Pizarro in Peru had not found these allies, they would not at all have been successful. That's pretty short-term thinking, though, that this does not, in the long term, actually work out for the people who have helped out Cortez or Pizarro. Uh, In the short term, it, it actually did. In fact, people benefited greatly by helping out Cortez, Pizarro, other conquerors in other parts of the New World. Their children maybe benefited a little bit. Their grandkids and their great-grandkids did not really benefit. They were the instruments of their descendants' oppression by thinking in the short term and not in the long term. And that is precisely what is happening here, that Wolf, the shadow child Wolf, and Sandwalker, they want to deal with their present needs, their immediate needs in this moment, which is, we don't want to die In order to not die, we need to overthrow our political oppressors, this empire that has conquered us, these marshmen. There are new people who have just shown up. If we can get them to help us, we can get on their side, then we can overcome our immediate enemy, our neighbors. We know this doesn't work out for the Abos, right? We know from the fifth head of Cerberus that the Abos are all gone. They've been gone for a hundred years, that there is one century in which humans and Abos are living on St. Anne together before all of the Abos are gone, unless we believe Vale's hypothesis. But let's set that aside for now. This is the destruction of an indigenous society that requires actually the consent of parts of that society in order to be perpetrated. That's what Wolf is showing us here in the end. And it is, of course, absolutely tragic. This is the stuff that Greek tragedies are made of. And a core part of Greek tragedy is irony. The Marshmen do not realize that by destroying the shadow children, the symbol, the last remaining symbol, no matter how many generations have existed, of the initial trauma, of the event that led to their transformation as a species— By hunting them to extinction, they are bringing about the wave that will destroy their species entirely. And this is irony in the most perfect form. Yeah, it suffuses this story because Wolf has brilliantly given us the follow-on to the fifth head of Cerberus novella, a prequel, such that we know how this story is going to end so that we, the audience, we, the readers, are the same people who are going to see Oedipus in Athens. We've never seen this play before. It's a brand new play, but we know this story. We know how this is going to end. And so the tension of the drama is in that irony that while we are watching Oedipus on stage, unaware that he is spelling his own doom, we can feel the pathos of his experience, because we know how his story is going to end. We can pity him for not knowing what his own ending is. 
this is the same way that we approach this story because we already know that the Abos have been driven to extinction. Exactly. And the movements of the story force us to identify with the tragic figures, which in classical terms is one, how we gain empathy. Pathos is a word that we use, you know, as a root word for empathy and sympathy and all these things that allow us to learn not to do things again that we've done by identifying with certain types of tragedy and tragedy also brings about catharsis. But this story, I think, leaves us very unsettled. And I don't think that this story ends on a cathartic note at all. But this is only the second act of three. So we may get some catharsis in the next story. We'll have to see. Well, I hope we do. But I'm also fine with the discomfort Wolf leaves us on as it is a tale of colonialism. And I think we're all comfortable now, today, looking back and realizing some of that didn't turn out so great. But some of it also got us where we are today. It's very complicated. And I think Wolf is really interested in the complicated legacy of the present. And maybe that's something we can fold into our conversation about time in our next episode. But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of our reading of this story. I think we presented 56 different possible readings of the last section of this story and perhaps this story as a whole. Let us know what you thought, what your ideas are. And just to reassure you, a lot of this will be tied up or at least some of these loose ends will be tied up in our next episode. We want to say thank you to everyone who participated in our Patreon poll to choose our next batch of stories. It's actually July as we're recording this, so we don't actually know which stories made it, uh, but we will have a post up on the website and social media in a few days, your time, a few months, our time, but you'll be able to check that out real soon. Next time, as Brandon said, we're going to wrap up a story by John V. Marsh. Uh, we're going to have a broad discussion of themes and motifs, the puzzles and mysteries. We've been teasing that, we know. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the craft of writing this story. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.